Hello, and welcome to the latest installment in the speaker series of the Hoover Institution's project on China's global sharp power. Today, we have as our guest, John Fitzgerald, an emeritus professor at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia. John is a historian of modern China who writes about the history of nationalism, public administration, and philanthropy in China, as well as the history of Chinese Australia. He served as the head of the Ford Foundation office in China from 2008 to 2013, as elected president of the Australian Academy of Humanities from 2015 to 2017, and currently serves on the board of the National Foundation for Australia-China Relations, a challenging topic to be sure. He has received top awards for his scholarship, including the Ernest Scott Prize of the Australian Historical Association and the Joseph Levinson Prize of the Association for Asian Studies here in the United States. John has been a pioneer in raising consciousness about how China wields sharp power in Australia and other democracies, and equally importantly, has worked closely with Australia's large Chinese diaspora to ensure that their interests, rights, and voices are respected. Most recently, he edited a timely report for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute entitled Taking the Low Road, China's Influence in Australian States and Territories, and before then, penned the finest statement I've seen anywhere on the values at stake when universities from open societies partner with China. He was also a contributor to this project, the China Global Sharp Power Project's 2018 report on China's influence American interests. Today, he joins us to introduce his new book, Cadre Country, How China Became the Communist Party, which is catapulted to the top of my list of recommended reads for those seeking to understand how China's leaders talk about and perceive themselves. It is, in John's words, the story of how a party, the Chinese Communist Party, swallowed a country. And it's told with the sparkling clarity and perceptive command of history that only someone of John's caliber uh, could muster. And so it's our good fortune that John wrote this book because I've long awaited for a book of this type. At a moment when one autocrat is doing the unconscionable, we mustn't take, make the mistake of misreading another. And so with that, I wanna welcome John and uh, I wanna urge you all just uh, on the basis of what you're about to hear to go out and buy this book. John, over to you, the floor is yours. Thank you, Glenn. It's an honor to be with you and with our fellow viewers. Speaking from Melbourne down here in Australia, I should begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I speak, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Now this book, uh, Carter Country, is written for its time and its place. <clears throat> a time that Xi Jinping describes as a time of major changes not seen in a century and a place or rather site of information warfare. The idea is to help people dealing with information overload about China or possibly disinformation to make sense of China today, where it's coming from and where it's going under Xi Jinping. In Australia, as Glenn pointed out, we've been describing the problem of sharp power or disinformation for long enough exposing United Front interference in public life and politics, not least affecting the diaspora community. And this has been going on for close to a decade, this exposure. But the next step is to go, as we see it, beyond describing the, the problem to trying to fix it. So the book is in a way an unapologetic intervention in this ongoing information war. The chapters are organized around a discrete number of claims 
that the party's champions here in Australia and internationally circulate to credit the Communist Party government for the achievements of China's people. Those achievements are immense. There's no doubt in it. So we have chapters, uh, I have chapters uh, on language and culture and history and economics and law and bureaucracy and planning and civil society and women and so on. It, it covers a fairly broad range of topics, but addressing very specific, specific claims that are made <clears throat> and highlighting at every point the extraordinary capacity and ability of China's people in dealing with a communist party state. A second aim of the book is just, how should I put, get back to basics, um, to take communism seriously once again as a system of organization, of management, and of total government. So this means taking Xi Jinping and his ideological advisors seriously at their word and parsing what they say to see what we can make of it for predicting China's future behaviors. It also involves revisiting earlier critiques of communism as a total system of government, particularly those that emerged from Central Europe during the Cold War. And I pay particular reference to Müller van Gielas's The New Class, to Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom, and I would add, incidentally, Franz Schurman's ideology and organization in communist China, which I think comes from that same sensibility. In going back to basics, the, the book covers a lot of common ground that experts would be familiar with. But some of this is, I think, overlooked by others who've taken a more recent interest in China. So I'd like to think that the book breaks some new ground, but on the whole goes over familiar ground and puts the case fairly plainly to get back to basics. So before I touch on some of the new insights I have to offer, let's touch on some of that common ground I refer to. Well, people who follow China closely know well that under Xi Jinping, it's not just another authoritarian regime. It's a party state of unprecedented size and power that is trying to consume the society and the economy over which it's presiding. Now, that society and economy today bear little resemblance to those of Mao's time, and yet Xi Jinping is reverting to a kind of Maoist model, the Maoist language and precepts and propaganda and modes of control, <clears throat> inappropriate, I would argue, for the society and economy over which it seeks to preside. I highlight some of these reversions throughout the book. Secondly, experts generally acknowledge this is not a case of an authoritarian party commanding things from a great height through a few powerful departments. And for sure, there are powerful departments. There's the Propaganda Department, the Organization Bureau, the OGBRO, the United Front Work Department, and so on. But they're not responsible for everything. The, the argument I make is that this is a pervasive Communist Party state, a vast entrenched system that permeates or insinuates itself into every aspect of life, including language. Uh, including neighborhoods, including the organizations to which people belong, the schools and colleges they attend, the places they work, the media they absorb, the histories and the stories they consume in films and museums. So Xi Jinping has revived the old Mao saying the party leads everything. This is often pointed out. I go further to argue the party is becoming everything, that 
soon there will be few institutions left standing in China that aren't part of the party state, this all-pervasive system. And the book pays particular attention to the carders or insiders who manage everything, the 20 million or so on the state payroll, even more if we include those on soft budgets. What motivates them? What incentive systems are in place? What privileges do they enjoy? What are the risks that come with those privileges? <clears throat> I dwell on these in different chapters in different ways. But I also try to convey what this means for ordinary people, people I call outsiders, that's what they're called in China. That is to say, citizens. How outsiders experience this system governed by insiders in their everyday life. So others have charted the resistance commoners mount in opposition to privilege and so on. My focus is more on the status and privileges of the carders, how they associate themselves with the nation and the state and their preservation with raison <coughs> d'etat, how they try to control outsiders' lives and how outsiders manage to get by despite them. And above all, I try to show how this system structures inequality into everyday life. I use the colloquial terms insiders and outsiders borrowed from uh, colloquial language in China to capture the pervasive sense of entrenched civic, legal and political inequality that commoners experience every day as outsiders. Here's something else. By, by, by focusing on communism as a management system, I draw attention to its vulnerabilities. And I don't think those weaknesses lie in the top leadership, in the peak of the system. They lie in the system itself, in what it is. It is fundamentally unequal and widely known and felt to be so. Those who run it, the cadres, acknowledge and justify this equality in a number of ways. I explore those in the book, some of them to do with Marxism, some to do with the Confucian tradition. But those locked out of the system, basically 1.3 billion people, <clears throat> they recognize the fund fundamental inequality that it entrenches. And they have no patience, I would argue, with those insider explanations. People, and firms for that matter, want to be regarded as equal under the law and they're not ceded the equality they seek. And I think this is a fundamental issue confronting China at the present time. I maintain also that this current system, that, that, or the, rather the trend toward rebuilding the system and repartifying the country sits uncomfortably, not just with what is now a relatively liberal society and economy, but also with long-term historical trends going back to the late imperial era, particularly with respect to full and equal participation by citizens within the polity. Even under the empire, certainly under the Republic, patterns of entrenched social, civic, legal, political inequality encountered resistance. People resented it at that time. How much more so today, this domestic dynamic towards equal civic participation in public life and politics, it seems to me, has really little to do with the pull of the West or the American model. It's driven by a domestic, domestic dynamic, pushing back against hierarchical, authoritarian, bu bureaucratic rule that can be traced back to the empire. And I spend a chapter or two 
on the dynamics of late imperial rule to show why I believe this to be the case. So what's new in the book? All up, there are 15 short chapters, each with something new to say, I'd suggest, but um, an example of, of, of a new point of view would be the chapters on nationalism and the party. Um, I argue there's far too much focus on sort of popular outrage as an expression of patriotism and far too little to the fundamental ideological and symbolic uh, language of nationalism in China. So let me extract a little bit from one of those chapters on China's humiliation narrative um, to illustrate uh, my point. And to do this, I really need to come about it in a roundabout way. This is a sensitive topic. Who dares talk about national humiliation? Well, let me just note that here on the international dateline in Melbourne, where I sit, it's St. Patrick's Day, the 17th of March. This feast is celebrated with drunken revelry in North America, but when and where I grew up, it was a time for high-step dancing, for athletics carnivals, for showing personal allegiance to the church, and for vowing as a community never to forget Oliver Cromwell. Who's this guy? Oliver Cromwell, you might ask. Well, around the same time that the Manchus invaded China, Oliver Cromwell's roundheads invaded Ireland, occupied it, massacred its people and took its lands. In fact, just five years separated Cromwell's invasion and the Manchu invasion in the 1640s. And the lessons I learned around St. Pat's were similar to those that circulated in secret societies in late imperial China. Basically, don't forget those centuries of humiliation and foreign conquest. I should add closer to home here in Australia, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands I stand also have significant grounds for historical resentment <clears throat> and want to reclaim those lands and their rights as best they should. Historical memories of national humiliation, I would suggest, are all around us. We just have to open our eyes and ears and observe. Now, this humiliation historically is a disruptive force that can work for good or for ill. It drives the resentment of the weak toward the strong in revolution. It fans resentment of some nations towards others, sometimes leading to war. So how it is that governments manage their historical humiliations is an indicator of a country's intentions in relation to war and peace so much as we need to acknowledge the universality, shall we say, of this kind of resentment around his historical humiliation. We need to be wary of the abuse of historical memory in the service of partisan violence leading to war. This is the frame in which I position China's experience of national humiliation in the book, approaching it on the one hand with respect, but with skepticism in equal measure. And I do this by contrasting the origins and currency of two distinct terms that have merged more or less in recent years. One of these is called the century of humiliation, the other national humiliation. Now these have sort of merged and mingled in the contemporary era, but in fact, they have very different origins and meanings. The century of shame or humiliation was favored by collaborationist forces in China who bookended the period from the Opium Wars to the Imperial Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor as 100 years. And they, the attack on Pearl Harbor and Japan's occupation 
uh, of China and uh, it, it, it's, its attack on foreign property and, and powers in China was seen as ending humiliation, ending a century of humiliation. Now, in 1941 and 1942, there's nothing national about this century of humiliation. It's transnational. It has to do with Commander Perry in Japan and the British Opium War, uh, the British and French uh, expeditions and, and so on. It's a, there are three nations caught up in this biennial century of humiliation. They are Japan, China, and the puppet state of Man Manchuria, all of them celebrating the end of the century of humiliation with the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now contrast the term guoshi or national humiliation. This entered wide currency after the 1895 war with Japan known as the Jiao War. And it faded in wake of Japan's defeat in 1945. This wasn't a century of transnational humiliation involving Japan. <clears throat> this was half a century of national humiliation involving China, 50 years from 1895 to 1945. Now, obviously the contrast I'm drawing here based on two terms loosely used today is, is an oversimplification. There were multiple sources of national humiliation in China at any one time. A Manchu conquest, the the Japan's victory in the Jiawu War, Japan's occupation, the Allied Army occupation of Beijing in um, 1900, and of course the ongoing humiliations of the unequal treaties. All were in play. All were deemed humiliating in their time. But let's just go with this oversimplification a little further. Come the 20th century, popular and elite resistance to the presence of foreign military forces on China's soil found expression in, particularly in the phrase guoshi and shuechi, or wuwang guoshi, don't forget national humiliation. There's a guo at the heart of that story, a country, a nation. If we drill down a bit further, through Chiang Kai-shek's diaries, we find that in May 1928, he began a new ritual, a daily ritual, which he carried on every morning for 15 years, from 1928 to, uh, no, more than that, for 17 years, 1928 to 1925. The trigger for this was Japan's Imperial Army units uh, halting the advance of his National Revolutionary Army in Shandong in May 28. In September that year, Jiang wrote in, in his diary. In September, uh, he, he said, from now on, I'm going to commemorate um, the humiliation. Um, but in September 1945, with the end of the war, he wrote, and I quote, the gravest national humiliations of the last 50 century are from this point completely wiped clean. He no longer mentioned national humiliation in his diary, certainly no longer began the day with that ritual commemoration. So for the KMT nationalists, Japan's official signature on the instruments of surrender marked the end of half a century of the gravest national humiliation, starting with the Jiao War of 1895. Now, again, that's an oversimplification. Um, Chiang Kai-shek had also uh, overseen the return of British and American extraterritorial rights in October 1942. Uh, they surrendered all privileges and rights under those treaties to the nationalist administration. So with the defeat of Japan, he could claim the end of the unequal treaties, the return of Taiwan and other territories, uh, and the end of occupation by Japan. All major obstacles, in short, to restoring national dignity appeared to have been removed with the exception of British Hong Kong, 
which remained a sore uh, thorn in his side. So Petyanka rightly then say 50 years of the greatest national humiliation are over. In fact, though, at this time, so, and shortly uh, ahead of it, partisan competition to claim credit for ending humiliation was underway. In fact, it barely begun. In December 41, as I said, the term century of humiliation, Baini and true, entered circulation in puppet government territories in North China, and in the hands of the collaborationist administration, it framed the story of humiliation as a challenge to Jiang Kai-shek and his attempt to wipe away 50 years of shame. The word national, we noted, was omitted from century of humiliation. And more importantly, it cast Japan as a victim, not as an oppressor. It enabled the puppet government to declare itself China's national liberator freeing the country from a century of humiliation along with Japan and Manchuria, would you believe? All in the name of wiping historical humiliation. So just introduce this example to show the way in which century of humiliation and national humiliation, wiping humiliation, are used in partisan struggle. <clears throat> There's a sense of which the Chinese nation is kind of forgotten somewhere here. It's the parties vying for control that are making most effective use of this term. Now let's jump to the People's Republic after 1949. The communists obviously paid little attention to national humiliation at that point beyond declaring it over. They said the Chinese people stood up. You know, that means are no longer bent over as slaves. The Chinese people stood up in 1949. Jiang Kai-shek said they stood up in 45. Uh, that's not what the communists said. But when the party did occasionally turn its mind to this question of humiliation, it fell precisely into the old collaborationist mold deploying the term century of humiliation to attack Chiang Kai-shek, branding him a collaborator aligned with America, which is exactly what Wang Jinwei had done in 1942. Overall, however, in the, in the People's Republic, over the decades from 49 to 89, the two humiliation motifs barely rated mention in public education. Why? Because it was thought to be a thing of the past. What changed this? Why do we hear it now so often? What changed it was the democracy demonstrations, the massacres and the military suppression of June 1989. Needless to say, <coughs> um, China's people were not humiliated in those demonstrations. In fact, they were exalted in 1989. The party was humiliated by China's people. From this time forward, the motif of national humiliation was revived and harnessed once again for partisan advantage to support the party's struggle with its own people, but transferred, as it were, to an international struggle with liberal democracy. Recently, the most prominent use of the term in Xi Jinping's new era relates to warfare and preparation for future military conflict. This is significant. On the 20th of September 2017, the People's Daily branded the century of humiliation motif onto Xi Jinping's new policy of civil military fusion. I quote, one of the drivers for wiping clean the century of humiliation, even now, is fusing the development of research institutes and universities with the military. We're all in this together. Other associations with war soon followed, particularly during the uh, 2020 celebration of China's so-called victory over America in Korea. This was now said to have marked another 
milestone in the century of humiliation. In October 2020, the People's Daily published a speech by President Xi in which he said, the Korean War, and I quote, held immense significance in completely wiping away the century of humiliation. Or well, it might, and yet it goes on. Another People's Daily editorial urged readers to grasp deeply the spiritual essence of the great historical victory in order better create, to create the future. What future does this century of humiliation or national humiliation narrative predict for us? From C's writing, we know what it will take to erase the century of humiliation once and for all. He refers to system competition or the long-term struggle between two social systems, as he describes it, communist and capitalist, or socialist and democratic, and of the need for the party to build a socialism that will prevail over liberal democracy. The Communist Party will remain humiliated until it achieves that dominant position to which it aspires, in my judgment. So the party was humiliated in 89. Judging from its statement, since then, nothing but a redemptive victory over liberal democracy can redeem its honour. But this is a party struggle, not a national one. It does little to redeem China's honour, and to the contrary, debases, I would suggest, the history of national humiliation by invoking that century of humiliation motif to uphold the status and standing of the party, its ideology and its pervasive system, rather than uphold the dignity of China, the Chinese nation, or the equal dignity of China's citizens. So this is one sample, shall we say, of the, the stories and arguments set out in the book Cadre Country, which I think breaks some new ground. But really, it's all about getting back to basics. Um, and I make no apology for that. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, John, very much for that introduction to your to your book. Um, you know, I found your chapters on the party's anxieties about history especially cogent. And as we're both historians, I'd like to start there with our conversation. Can you explain to our audience why history matters so much to the party and why Xi Jinping in particular has made control of it a signature feature of his regime? I think the examples that you adduce of the Nanjing massacre or the global anti-fascist war as a foundation for a deep anti-Western narrative were especially well drawn. Perhaps you'd like to say a little bit more about those. And before you answer, I want to encourage our audience also, we'll have some time at the end of this program for Q&A. And so if you'd like to pose your uh, questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screens, I encourage you to do so. But John, let's start there. Um, yes, we have a professional interest in this as historians, but in fact, the Communist Party takes a keen interest in history. And it often strikes me when Australian firms or governments go in to do business with China, they take in lawyers and sit them around the table um, and assist them in understanding uh, perhaps some of the nuances of what's being said on the China side. They'd be better advised, in my judgment, to take in historians. Um, I think we'll recall when President Xi Jinping met with Donald Trump in Beijing, much of their conversation as Mr. Trump himself acknowledged later, was about history. <laughs> Xi Jinping wanted to give Donald Trump a history lesson. And, and Mr. Trump came away in firmly in the belief that uh, Korea had once been part of China and a whole lot of other nonsense that had been told to him. Now, the lawyers in the room were in a position <laughs> to challenge that. But I imagine if there were historians there, they might have done so. And we wouldn't have had that embarrassing moment. The Communist Party wants to persuade everybody um, 
that its version of history is correct because its legitimacy is founded on certain historical claims. Um, so um, people often point out the sort of performance legitimacy that the Communist Party can claim, can claim on the back of China's economic growth, the sharing of relative sharing of wealth, the elevation of probably lifting people out of poverty and so on. Well, that, that's true, but performance legitimacy is contingent. The one source of legitimacy that the Communist Party sees as not contingent, as absolute and irreversible, is the fact that it won the war, it won the civil war. This was history's decision for China, that it should have a Communist Party. So history is sort of the, not quite God, but the arbiter of political outcomes and political structures. The, the, the party doesn't go to the people to secure a mandate. It appeals to history to secure the mandate, the mandate of heaven. And so it's forever having to um, support and justify its claim to rule China on historical grounds. These grounds can shift over time. You might remember in Mao's day, similar claims were made then. It was, of course, the party represented the revolutionary forces that had long been present in China, manifest in great uprisings, peasant uprisings and the Taiping Rebellion, and the Communist Party represented that great tradition. Well, that's all been forgotten. Um, rather now, the claim is that the Communist Party represents uh, the great tradition of authoritarian, hierarchical, bureaucratic rule, delivering outcomes as only a great empire can, and, and so on. But either way, so my point is, I suppose, that the, the grounds of the historical justification for the mandate change over time. But the claim to the mandate is fundamentally historical, and so history matters. So being able to control the historical narrative is essential for maintaining legitimacy at a very fundamental level. This has nothing to do with performance. It has to do with the identity of the party as, shall we say, history's savior uh, for China. It's true, I do elaborate on these themes, um, one in relation to the party itself, but another in relation to the Nanjing massacre and why it is that the party kept it, basically kept silence over this for 30 years. Uh, the massacre that it now urges everybody never to forget was forgotten during Mao's time. <clears throat> Uh, and I also look at the anti-fascist war. And I think actually the anti-fascist war claims that the party makes, which are really uh, emerge most strongly in the 2000s, basically are setting up China and Russia as partners and friends. This is, goes back to the early 21st century, uh, 2005, 2008, various statements made about the anti-fascist war, which um, align the current Chinese government, the communist government, with Stalin's Russia and see China as aligned with Russia in defeating fascism in Europe and fascism in China. Now, where the many Eastern European countries can rightly claim that they overthrew fascism, in China, this isn't the case. I mean, it's the nationalists who overthrew or defeated the Japanese with the support of the United States and allies. The communists played a relatively minor role. No. They regard, in a sense, that the nationalists whom they overthrew as fascists. It's a bizarre agglomeration of claims which really don't stack up. But I think the strategic lesson drawn from this is that the historical claims that the party draws upon for its mandate are extended to a mandate to work with Russia to defeat liberal democracy in the contemporary world. And I think we're seeing that played out in very real terms. I hadn't predicted it in the book. 
but in very real terms of what's happening in Ukraine and China's response to that at the present time. I'm glad you brought us to that point. I, I think that's a very important one to make. Um, you make the point that in the early aughts, um, that, that that seemed to be a moment in time where a more open, pluralistic China seemed within grasp. I was living in Beijing at the time, and I remember the vitality and sense of possibility in the air, and that, well, people did not seem to be afraid to speak their minds. Um, but I also remember a sense that powerful forces were waiting silently in the wings for an opportunity to strike back. And there was a, an unease in some quarters that a shoe might drop at any moment. And of course it did. Now we've seen, and, and you being a historian, we've seen several cycles of relaxation and tightening like this in China over the last century under different regimes, I might add. And each time one gets one's hopes up that this one will be different and achieve a kind of escape velocity, but then they don't. What lessons do you draw from that? And if there is anything like a reversion to the mean in Chinese politics, where is that mean? So I think um, <clears throat> I, I share with you the sense that um, the reform era um, was a time of great promise. There were setbacks obviously, and then a reversion to the reform agenda. And we could trace that in detail if you wish. But I think what's different now is this, that the reform era was an era with its own you know, uh, backward and forward motion. That era is over. I mean, what Xi Jinping means when he speaks about the new era, the Xin Shidai, is to say, this is my 30 years. That was the reform 30 years, and before that again, Mao Zedong's 30 years, that he's ushered in a 30-year cycle, which doesn't have a serious reform uh, agenda at all. Um, reform, such as, as it is, is a revision of the reform initiatives of the preceding 30 years to reform the system so that it reverts in significant ways to the one that Mao Zedong oversaw in the first 30 years. Now, of course, in the recent historical um, document issued by the party and in various other claims, um, C presents himself as the sort of reconciler, the great reconciler who can reconcile the first 30 years of revolutionary China with the next 30 years of reform China. And he's a sort of reforming revolutionary or revolutionary reformer, I'm not quite which. <clears throat> but he's setting himself up not within that repetitive cycle of reform and um, backward step, you know, two steps forward, one step back, but totally outside that framework. And we need to read what he's saying and what ideological um, guides or mentors are saying as well to understand the significance of this. I don't think we're any longer in that 30-year cycle um, that you described that uh, had its high points and its low points. I can't see any high points in these 30 years. I'm glad you Certainly. ended there because I, I wanted to ask how much you think this is attributable to one man. And if he were to drop dead tomorrow as you know, some have sort of spun out um, uh, theories, uh, what would you expect to happen? Would you expect China to return to something more like that freer, more pluralistic environment of the early aughts? Um, or, uh, or are we truly on a new trajectory that has a momentum of its own? So my perspective on this is not one which imagines regime change. Let me put it that way. Um, Xi Jinping is a very important figure 
but he crystallizes sentiment within the party, particularly uh, within the second generation, third generation red families, <clears throat> that the revolution is theirs, the country is theirs, and it's theirs to do with as they will. That seems to be the, the, the motif uh, of his administration. And he's not alone in that. I guess where there are tensions, it's really between, you know, I guess there are what we call them, the ruling families and this ruling elan, and everyday cadres who are paying a very, very high cost uh, for, for this in this new era. The attack on corruption, long overdue, I should add, um, <clears throat> has really taken out many millions of cadres and affected their families, which has undermined uh, in a very, very important way the esprit de corps of the cadre system. I write a little about this uh, in the book. So <clears throat> I guess the problem that Xi Jinping is likely to face is that the cadre system, as I describe it, this all-pervasive system of governance is driven either by ideology um, or, or some other in incentive system, ideology uh, or, or corruption, we might say. So corruption made the system work in the reform era. Ideology made the system work in Mao's era. Xi Jinping needs to build uh, a substantial new sort of faith system in his own leadership in order to make the system even work. Now that's problematic, not just for China, but for many people outside of China, because if you're not allowing corruption, then um, ideological, uh, I should say, uh, ideological fanaticism is the alternative to making the system work, as in Mao's day. Right, and the turn to nationalism and, and almost a permanent feeling of campaign time, which I think we've, we've all seen from the outside in China since Xi Jinping, return to power, and that has diminishing returns, and it leads into dangerous directions. So many of your explanations are systemic in nature and grounded in sort of well-worn processes that have accreted over decades. What would it take to overcome that burden? Can we imagine uh, a China reclaiming itself from the Communist Party without tearing itself apart? I guess the, the finding in my book is the system itself is vulnerable the leadership is less vulnerable. Um, the leadership controls all the levers of power and surveillance. Um, it's very difficult uh, to see it faltering, although anything could happen, of course. Rather, <clears throat> the sense I have living in China over the years and working uh, in China and, and working with people from China is that there's intense popular resentment around the system that sets cadres apart from themselves this insider-outsider uh, sort of uh, structure um, that was around in Mao's day, which um, persisted through the reform era, and that Xi Jinping maintains to this time, much as life is difficult for cadres under his um, anti-corruption campaign. <clears throat> Nevertheless, for ordinary people, um, the, the cadres appear to be a select group and they have no... Uh, not treated as equals, that people feel that they are treated unequally in relation to insiders. This relates to employment, it relates to the law, it relates to residence, it relates to access to motor vehicles and, and what have you. Now that's, a, again, a system vulnerability 
Um, I think contingencies come along. Uh, things happen that can trigger um, uh, around vulnerabilities, but I can't see the vulnerabilities themselves leading uh, to anything without such a trigger. I don't know what that trigger would look like. I do in the book um, pay great attention to the global financial crisis and suggest this was an enormous trigger uh, undermining the reform efforts and the reformers in China and empowering those sort of you know, black-shirted guys in the background of every meeting whom you kind of refer to there uh, to, to, to step forward and reclaim their place at the head of the system. Uh, the, the, the party, the really powerful party figures uh, who are in the background uh, have, uh, were enormously enabled by the global financial crisis. That's not to say they weren't planning for this already. I think we can find from 2006 through 2008 significant changes already underway in China. And I find this when I look at history, the way history is being treated, the, the elevation of global anti-fascist war over the term anti-Japanese war, which is the old term, that really started around 2005, 6, 7, well ahead of the global financial crisis. So um, the, those figures in the background were already uh, alert and working to seize the opportunity when it arose, and it did. Whether another opportunity like that comes up for another group within the party, I, I can't predict. I think that your treatment of that global anti-fascist war is, is especially alarming, given that the party is setting itself up and defining itself in terms of a life or death struggle against the, the West in a way that I'm not sure those outside of China um, generally appreciate. Uh, and do you think, um, do, you, do you take the party at its word or do you think it's grasping at straws here, uh, trying to find an ideological justification to continue to kick the can down the road? It's, it's quite possible that all of that applies. Uh, I do think we'd be foolish to underestimate the degree to which Xi Jinping sees himself engaged in a system struggle between two systems competing for dominance in the global stage. And he's prepared to take it to the other system, to the liberal democracies. There's no denying that. Uh, and whichever field I look, whether it's around historical writing or uh, statements around the media, um, or many of the other areas I touch on in the book around planning and so on, um, we find the, the same motifs recurring again. This is a system struggle. Um, the Communist Party needs its system to, to win because the Communist Party itself is vulnerable within China against, because, as I said, it was humiliated by its own people and needs to redeem itself in their eyes. Um, yes, I don't know where to take that idea, but... Uh, I, I, I want, I'm, I'm afraid a lone passage caught my eye, and I, I have to ask you about it and, and pull on that thread, being an American. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that the global financial crisis might have been a pivotal moment in the, um, in the struggle between a more pluralistic society and, and you know, the, the, the cadres behind the curtain, so to speak, who, who came forward and took China back to its um, Maoist basics. You seem to hold the United States to some degree responsible for that pivot, for the turn that China took in the last dozen years owing to how the global financial crisis began in the US. And you, you mentioned the successful exploitation of China's vulnerabilities just at, owing to corruption, um, you know, that US intelligence agencies um, took advantage of 
uh, by penetrating the Chinese government. Could you elaborate on this? Because this is one of the, the few arguments that you make that is not driven by an internal process, really, but is, 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 is pegged on external causation. Yes. So uh, I think many people in the United States <clears throat> would hold the government and Wall Street partly responsible for the global financial crisis. I don't think I'm an exception there. In China, it was universally seen, as I understand it, as a product of US uh, financial and government mismanagement. <clears throat> the, uh, the, the lesson I quote, which I find cited in many books in the period, that um, we have lost our teacher. I heard people in China saying that to me. These are people on the reform side of the ledger in China who would say we look to the United States as a teacher. We no longer have a teacher. We need to find our own way. Um, so I'm not really blaming the United States. What I'm doing is saying that within China, the United States lost its standing uh, a system to be emulated. And that opened the way for others to push back or to revert to an earlier Maoist model. Um, <clears throat> I guess people in China at that level are, are not really used to seeing uh, democracy as a sort of multi-state system. That, that is democracies in Europe, uh, democracies in uh, the Pacific, Japan, are in, in no sense responsible as the United States was at the global financial crisis. But the United States is seen as the democracy. And... Um, you know, it's any, any failings in the United States is seen not as a, just as a failing of the United States, but as a failing of the liberal democratic model. That sense was pervasive in China while I was working there uh, from 2008 to 2013. <clears throat> the, this uh, question of the United States taking advantage of corruption to place CIA agents in uh, senior levels in the party, the military, and, and the government, I may be giving that. Um, more emphasis than it deserves. <clears throat> but I think the timing was quite extraordinary that, um, like I'd been working in China for some years. I'd met with party officials who were deeply concerned about corruption, but really nothing was being done about it at a senior level. No decision had been taken at the top level to tackle corruption. My sense was because the whole system depended on it. Um, it was rather when corruption appeared to threaten the interests of state at a very fundamental level to become a security issue that political forces could be mobilized at the top to stamp down on it. And it became a security issue largely, as I understand it, as I read it, uh, through the discovery of CIA penetration through corrupt practices of very, very um, senior officers in China's military party and government. Office. Again, I don't hold the United States responsible either for the placement nor for their discovery. I think the whole thing is a tragedy. Um, but I think that um, I'm reading tea leaves here, quite frankly. I don't have access to classified intelligence. But the timing is exquisite. And that that exposure, and I was there at the time, of CIA uh, interference in China um, coincided with the claims that Corruption now threatened the survival of the state. That had never been said before at that you know, most senior level by the premier, to my knowledge. Uh, and, and that's where I bring those two together. 
I think that's a really interesting addition to the argument that's often made that Xi Jinping, you know, um, studied the Soviet example and that motivated him to restore discipline within the party and tackle corruption first. Uh, it's a perfectly plausible argument, but not one that's often made. And and so I, I thank you for uh, for connecting those dots. I want to give. I guess what um, I was saying yeah. is it's not just Xi Jinping. I mean, uh, Hu Jintao and and uh, the whole group at that time who were still in power, came to realize at that um, 2012 party conference stated very explicitly that corruption threatens the survival of the state. <clears throat> that was the, the Congress of which she was appointed um, uh, what uh, general secretary of the party, um, but it wasn't just him. It seems that coalition, uh, the coalescing uh, of um, an understanding around the threat of corruption to a system where it had thrived for 30 years, corruption um, really was prompted by something external. Before turning to the audience Q&A, I want to give my colleague Larry Diamond an opportunity to uh, pose any questions. Larry. Well, I have one big question. And John, it's wonderful to see you. And thank you so much for writing this important work and being a friend to our program. I want to cite three statements you've made that it seems are important to your analysis and to this book. She uh, sees himself engaged in a system struggle between two systems, and he's prepared to take it to the other system. Uh, nothing but a redemptive victory over liberal democracy in that struggle will suffice. And she now thinks this is his 30 year era, or at least maybe 25 in terms of three terms beyond the ter two term limit. So um, if you add all that up, uh, it seems we're headed towards some kind of, you know, existential conflict uh, that's bound to have a military component to it and that one presumes is going to involve at least partially Taiwan, because how can that be avoided? First of all, literally to end the century of humiliation. And second of all, to prove his worth and claim to the 30-year era and to win at least the beginning of a decisive struggle um, over the liberal side. So I'm wondering if you think that that is the inevitable implication of all of this that you're saying, that at some point Xi Jinping's China will move coercively against Taiwan. And I'm wondering if you think that any of these calculations that China may be making have been altered by what's happening in Ukraine now. So Larry, I think, yes, you've picked up three important points that I stress both in my talk <clears throat> and in the book. Um, I, I think we have, we need to take this system very, very seriously, not just because of what it means for China, but what it means for the rest of us. And that's why I think paying attention to what was coming out of Central Europe and Eastern Europe um, during the, uh, the Cold War is very important for us today. We need to revisit some of those arguments and some of those those claims, they could stand us in good stead. I think we've, much as China remembers what happened in the Soviet Union, we seem to have forgotten what happened. And I think there are lessons to be learned. <clears throat> um, yes, I think Xi Jinping is prepared 
for an existential conflict, uh, which has a military component, and that Taiwan is, is foremost uh, on his agenda. That said, I think contingency plays a role, uh, as I pointed out in an earlier response. I mean, what, it, what he's doing, it seems to me, is setting up the country and the society and the economy on a kind of wartime footing. Not so much mobilized, but disciplined to the point where it can support a decision to go to war at the highest levels of the government. I think we can find indications of this uh, across many levels of society, the economy, uh, the structure of state and the military. <clears throat> he stated explicitly um, that um, uh, Taiwan will be recovered um, and that uh, he does not renounce the use of force. Now, there's no difference there from earlier administrations, nor should I add, does it seem to me that the United States has made any significant change to its Taiwan policy, which is to say that the United States does not take issue with sovereignty claims, but um, does not approve China um, using force or coercion to achieve unification. <clears throat> So, but contingencies can change things. And you're right, the, um, the Ukrainian war could be sending uh, new lessons, it could be delivering new lessons to Beijing. That said, it's, um, I, I tend to see the way the, the party operates and Xi Jinping operates, not so much as somebody looking to learn lessons, but as someone looking to find opportunities. Um, and opportunities um, come and go. When an opportunities arise, he'll be in a position to move. I think that's what we need to learn and remember. Um, whether he's taking a, so the lesson he might take from Ukraine is likely to be around opportunities rather than around logistics or military operations and so on. I'm not quite sure uh, how to take that further, but given the way uh, the senior leadership thinks that this is a, a time of change not seen in a century, um, that China's position to move and position itself as a system that will prove its value against all others, its superiority against all others, um, that, that you know, a significant change in events on the ground can create or remove opportunities to act um, on, on the sort of internal logic of Xi Jinping's agenda. Um, I can't say exactly how the Ukraine features in that, but I think that's the frame to understand it not just around logistics or strategy or equipment or military operations, but around opportunities. What opportunities arise, what opportunities are diminishing as a result of the Ukraine war. Thank you, John. I wanna to turn to our, our Q&A now, and, and maybe what I'll do is I'll begin by merging uh, two uh, questions posed by Alice Miller. Um, who uh, had, uh, I guess, a couple of different thoughts. Alice um, notes that the 2021 party history resolution identified the Taipings, the Westernization movement, the 1898 reform, and the boxers as efforts to save the nation from peril. And they seem particularly anachronistic antecedents for defense of the, the nation in, in a contemporary sense. It's hard to see the Taipings and boxers as nationalistic. So I suppose she asks you to explain how the party knits these somewhat incoherent elements together into its own narrative. And, and perhaps I could add on to that. Um, 
you know, is that compelling, do you sense, in, in, within China? Uh, does it hang together in a way that, that the party has succeeded in, you know, building a, a, a narrative around that? And then the second question uh, has to do with the off-quoted Maoist elements that appear in Xi Jinping's policies. And Alice feels that many of these are not, strictly speaking, Maoist, but perhaps more properly Stalinist. Um, do you share that perspective? Uh, thank you, Alice. On your second question first, Maoist or, or Stalinist, um, I, I think you're probably right. Um, and that there's been quite a bit of work to illustrate that Xi Jinping's reversion, such as it is, is to a style of uh, Stalinism. I use the term Maoism to refer to um, the earlier era, that is to say his attempt to uh, reconcile the reform in the early era by reverting in many ways to things that we might describe as Maoist. Actually, I shouldn't say Maoist, I should say practices of the Mao Zedong era, some of which were themselves <clears throat> Stalinist. Um, on the, the first question though, in relation to the sort of resuscitation of the Taipings who were largely forgotten in the reform era, we'll recall, and the boxers who in fact enjoyed a bit of a revival in the reform era, <coughs> you might recall as well. Um, uh, I do recall visiting a, a museum in North China, which celebrated the Boxer massacres of Christians and celebrated the, uh, the murderers as, as heroes. And that was during the reform era before Xi Jinping came to power. So there's a, uh, there's a sense at the local level on the ground that local carters and, and officials have a history they want to commemorate of resistance to foreigners and the boxers are part of that story. How do we reconcile the sort of atavistic or backward looking aspects of the Taiping and Boxer Rebellion with the modernization agenda of uh, Xi Jinping? Um, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure I can answer that question, but <clears throat> I think it's probably worth remembering that he's seeking to reclaim um, dynamics, anti-Western dynamics within China. Uh, with the boxers um, and anti-official dynamics in China with the Taipings. The Taipings were not just opposed to the Manchus, but opposed to the, um, the rank and hierarchy and so on of that, that system. Um, and Xi Jinping himself uh, has issues with his own cadres. Um, that might be drawing a long bow, uh, but... Um, uh, I need to look more closely into that uh, to answer your question in detail. We have enough time, I think, for one final question. I want to bring it to you from uh, David Shambaugh, who I believe you credit with catalyzing this volume um, that we're talking about today. He, uh, he notes that um, the, Eastern, uh, the, the communist governments of Eastern Europe, the former USSR, atrophied and collapsed from within precisely because controllers stopped controlling information in people's lives and the enforcers became lax in enforcing. And Xi Jinping has sort of made that own argument as the basis for his, um, you know, his, uh, his uh, argument about intensifying party discipline and, and ideology. Do you see any evidence of such a lack of discipline among the enforcers and controllers in China today? Is there the 
possibility of a cognitive dissonance because they have access to outside information, but their job is to block it from others? And might they begin to question their own system based on their access to that outside information? Yeah, thank you, David. <clears throat> when I refer to Eastern Europe, I'm thinking of the intellectuals who described the innate problems of the system, the all-pervasive system that we need to rediscover, because I think those, those system problems do persist in China. Um, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the system in China is itself on the brink of collapse, uh, because the system managers, the cadres have lost faith in it. Um, Xi Jinping is moving people very quickly through that system, putting his own people in command and has surveillance uh, and other management uh, tools at his disposal that few European or Central Eastern European countries had at theirs. Um, <clears throat> but David, I'd like to explore this more closely because I do think what happened in Eastern Europe has bearing on what is happening in China today. I'm not quite sure where we should take that, but I think the readings that I commenced when I started writing this book, uh, particularly uh, the new class, and particularly, well, I've mentioned a few of the others, I found very, very valuable in framing the questions I wanted to ask about China. And I think those vulnerabilities are there, but there are vulnerabilities between those inside and outside the system, <clears throat> rather than vulnerabilities um, within the system itself. But I stand to be corrected on that. It sounds like uh, time will tell, but also that uh, these are questions worth pursuing um, in, uh, in future work. I, uh, I want to let our audience members know that um, our next event will be held on April 12th. Uh, we'll be sending out an announcement about that in coming weeks, but it will be uh, uh, a talk by Min Xin Pei, who will be speaking about uh, China and its surveillance state, his new work in, in that area. I want to thank you all for joining us. Most of all, I want to thank John for stimulating talk and an excellent book. And um, we hope to work with you more in the future, John. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Glenn. <laughs>